Hey, this is Derek Duncan from the Feed the Ball podcast. You're listening to State of the Game, the golf podcast that started it all. Be sure to check out the Talking Golf Network at TalkingGolf.com, the home of golf's most engaging discussions. Everybody and welcome to episode 92 of State of the Game, the golf podcast that talks about stuff that matters. My name's Rod Murray, and what matters on this episode is coaching and the changing face of professional golf. We'll welcome 25-year overnight success Dennis Pugh to the discussion shortly. Dennis works, of course, with the reigning Open champion Francesco Molinari, but the Italian is just the latest in a long list of successful professionals who've blossomed under his watchful eye. State of the Game co-host Mike Clayton among them. We'll meet Dennis in just a moment, but before we do, a quick reminder about our new State of the Game podcast feed. It's the ideal social media channel to keep up with our latest episodes. You'll find it at at, and it's capitals, S-O-T-G underscore, capital P, O-D, S-O-T-G underscore pod. Uh, while we're at it, you can find me at, at rod underscore Mori. that's M-O-R-R-I, Jeff Shackelford at at, Jeff Shack and Mike Clayton at, at Michael Clayto 15. Now, we're without Jeff Shackelford today, but don't despair. We do have one of the game's most forthright speakers and also one quarter of the Ogilvy Clayton Cocking and Mead design firm, as well as being a contributing columnist to both Golf Australia, the organisation, and magazine of the same name. It's Mike Clayton. Clayton, this is going to be a particularly enjoyable chat for you today, I would think. You spent several years working with Dennis in the days when you played the European Tour. There will be, yeah. I remember when he. Dennis came back from, he was in America, and I, a few of us had seen David Ledbetter, and he sort of said, go and see Dennis Pugh, he's moved, moved back, and he'll be good. So a lot of the Australians went and saw him. Greg Turner, Peter Fowler, um, Peter O'Malley, whose swing he changed a lot more than anyone recognised. Um, so he's gone on to bigger and better things now with the Open Champions, so it'll be fun to catch up. Indeed, and shout-out to Greg Turner, who now apparently is an Australian. Well done, Greg. We welcome you with open arms. You've got a terrific record, and I'm sure he'll enjoy that as much as we are. Now let's meet the man himself. For those of you who follow Dennis on Twitter, you'll already know that there's a reason he and Clates get along so well. Forthright is probably the best way to describe Dennis's social media persona, and the world and the game are better places for it, it must be said. Dennis has worked with more than 200 touring professionals, according to his bio, but as is the way with these things, he's really only started to achieve the recognition he deserves more broadly in the last couple of years. Dennis, welcome. Do you reckon I've got that right? It's obviously an outsider's perspective, but it certainly feels as though Francesco's recent success has turned a much brighter spotlight on you. Yeah, thanks, Rod. Thanks for the introduction, Clates. How are you doing? Good to hear from you after all these yeah. years. Always fun to chat golf with you, and... Uh, yeah, the thing is, uh, at 64, I'm an overnight success with one player. It's amazing how people see the, the way the game works as if you're a coach. You know, you, you live and die by the results of the players. And fortunately, over the years, I've coached some really good players, hopefully done some good work with them. But Francesco's sort of icing my cake for me. Yeah, absolutely. Run through for people who aren't aware some of the players that you have worked with, aside, of course, from Clates. Well, yeah, I mean... Plates was a, he's still a legend. There's still stories being told on the European tour about Michael Clayton. I can assure you of that. Um, but I started out, interestingly enough, with an English amateur champion called Mark Davis, who was a 17, 18 year old kid and took him all the way from uh, amateur to the tour. And he was managed by IMG and a few of the Australian players were. And 
it was Greg Turner that set me on the way because they sort of figured out if I could fix Greg Turner, I must be a genius because at the time, Greg was really down in the dumps and not playing anything like golf. And when he started, the thing about Greg is he said, if you can give me a, a, a long game where I can get a chance to win, I know what to do to win. And he was right. Yep. He did know what to do and he, he could take it over from there. But there were so many and, and Clates and Chucky Fowler and, and, uh, uh, Frank Novello. Frank Novello and, and others, Mike Harwood, of course, who, who Mike was a really interesting character because he was so simple, what I told him, but he went on to have 18 months where he was possibly, if not one of the best, certainly one of the top five in the world. He was second in the Open. He won the PGA. He, was, he won the uh, European Open. Open. He was just marvellous player for a short period of time. And that was all happening before Monty. And once Monty came along, I was lucky to get coaching Monty and I saw genius at work and that affected the way I coached. Maybe we'll talk about that later. Mm. But then it came that I, I got hold of the Molinari brothers and they were amateurs and they went on to great success as pros. So, you know, as a coach, you could have all the theories, all the good ideas in the world, but you need to be in standing next to good players on the range. And I've been lucky to stand next to a lot of good players on the range. Yeah, we'll dissect the coach-player relationship a little bit more a bit further down the track. It sounds, Dennis, like in the early days in particular, you were kind of drawn to the Antipodeans, lots of Kiwis and Australians amongst that. Any reason? I heard Frank Nobolo talking about Francesco. I think it was on that the Golf Channel Live discussion after the third round of the Masters, and he was saying that your theories early on in your career, a lot of people sort of thought that what you were talking about was a bit different and a bit out there, but you've kind of been proven over time that your theories work. Do you recall that being the case? Is Frank right about that? And why such a close relationship with people from this part of the world? Is it just that forthright thing that you enjoy, perhaps? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, these, these guys from down under, don't they don't uh, mind if you tell the truth as you see it, and they're going to tell it back to you. But the real reason is, and it's a compliment to what happens in Australian golf, is that in Australian golf, they were happy to deal with what's real today. What's the new facts? What's, what's happening? How best to make good players become better players and not stuck in the past? And there's plenty of things that happened in Australia over the years, which have proven now. You look at Australian players, there's very, very few. I can't think of one to my mind who swings the club poorly. So the coaching has been based really strongly on good technique. And that's not the case throughout the world. So perhaps, you know, the desire to make sure that they weren't let down by their technique. And when you travel a long way to play around the world, perhaps you want to know that your technique is going to support you and then you can let your talents come through. So, you know, I'm a, I'm a great fan of what's happened in Australia and New Zealand golf because the coaches have worked hard to become as good as they can be and that's made the players become as good as they can be. Mm. They're punched above their weight in a lot of ways, haven't they? Australia, the Australian PGA has a very good name around the world amongst their peers, don't they? PGA professionals from Australia, coaching and teaching professionals, don't they? They really do have an excellent reputation globally. Yeah. Uh, I'd be interested to hear what Clates mm. has got to say about that relationship between players and coaches, because that's the key to it. You don't just want coaches that have got lots of theories, and you don't want coaches who are just friendly, chatty guides. You need someone who can bring those two things together. Clayton, what do you reckon? Yeah, I think, well, I think that's true. My counter to that would be Jeff Ogilvie's argument, which is Australians have been not obsessed, but very orientated on good technique. And Jeff's point is we've forgotten a bit how to, you actually need to get around the golf course. Right. And 
that's of course the other important element of you, we were talking about the president's cut. Jeff and I, in fact, we were talking about the president's cut team yesterday, talking about the South Korean players. He said, look, they're fantastic. When they get on a, you know, six times a year, they get conditions that suit them and they, and they play well and they, and they win tournaments. They're terrific at it. But put them at Royal Melbourne in the wind with a flyer light or a rock hard green, you know, with a left pin and a right to left win or a left to right win. They're not that great at adapting, but they're great at the technique stuff. And that's maybe just a part of the evolution of the game because it's a newer game there than it is here. But, yeah. you know, as good as the techniques have been down here, I, you know, Jeff worries that you can go too much the other way and obsess about if, it, if this guy's got a good swing, he's going to be a good player. And, you know, I mean, you saw Monty play who, if you judge a swing, and you taught him, if you judge a swing by aesthetics, then Monty didn't have a good swing. If you judged it by how he hit the ball, he had one of the best techniques ever because he was such a yeah. great striker with the ball. And, and he, uh, you know, he, he must have done in that swing so many things right. He to was make in, the ball fly the way it did. Yeah, yeah he was. Yeah, yeah, you know, the point is that fine line between playing the game but playing the game with good technique which gives you more options. Um, and you know, playing the game, and Monty had extremely good technique. It just didn't look like it was good technique. And he was the best example of how an individual player can help a coach to understand how to teach individuals. Mm. You know, and, and, I, and that was the transfer from me from being a, if you like, stuck in a system to saying, well, how can I help each individual? And Monty made me a better coach. I hope I helped him become a a decent player. I think the record shows I got, I helped him on four of his eight, um, trophies, best player in Europe, but it was an interesting discovery and there's plenty of good Monty stories. Some of them I can't even tell you, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Tease but that out a bit for me, Dennis, I, that, that he taught you as much as you taught him idea. I'm intrigued by that because, of course, as a coach, the temptation with a player like Monty is to, and, and I guess this is what we see in the modern, the swings look a lot more the same from player to player, don't they? There's a reason for that because there's there's a there's a there's parameters for effective ways to swing the club. But he looked so different that as a coach, the temptation must be to say, "Oh well, we need to fix this, 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 and this, and this." T- tell me how that relationship between the two of you worked and what you did learn from Monty, as you said. Well, uh, you know, the very quickly going through the Monty story was that when I coached him the very first time, I I spent about an hour with him, and his golf balls were caked in mud. And I said, when was the last time you practiced? He went about four four months ago. Wow. Went, well, you don't practice a lot. He went, no, no. And he went off and won the million-dollar challenge. So you can't get off to a better <laughs> – you know, that's what they say when a million dollars was a lot of money, yeah. you know, which well, a lot to most of us, but to players now, it's pocket money. But Monty came back and said, that was great. I'd like to work with you. I'll see you at Bay Hill in March. Well, we went from early December – to March, and when he opened his bag in Orlando in March, he still had the tags on and, and the, the stuff from Sun City. Wow. Uh, you know, he played golf uh, very little, but he was very good at it. And he got me thinking that maybe you don't have to spend hours on a range uh, working on technique. And he said to me, when I'm hitting it well, your job's simple. Remember what it looks like when I'm hitting it well. And when I'm hitting it badly, tell me what I look like when I was hitting it well. And that's a different type of coaching to coming up with lots of swing theories. Yeah. Clates, you've been coached. 
You've been coached by Dennis. What's the key to Dennis's success? Do you think? And, and I imagine you, you're somewhat privy to some, some, some Dennis working with the bloke next to you who he also coaches. And did you see differences in the way Dennis dealt with you compared to other players? Uh, well, we all had different faults. Now. I mean, we, I think Dennis would agree that we, in, in the 80s, he was dealing with a whole bunch of players, Chucky or Peter Fowler, you know, Frank, mm-hmm. Tom, O'Malley, who had grown up in the 70s with, you know, no video cameras, thinking we all look like Johnny Miller and Jack Nicholas, and, you know, much ropier techniques than players of this generation grew up with because they can see everything on the phone. So, you know, he was dealing with a lot of different things with us, I think. I mean, I had a much different swing to Pong. We had a much different swing to Peter Fowler. We had a much different swing to Frank Novello. So he was dealing with lots of different things. But, you know, I guess he... I mean, essentially, Dennis, you, I guess you would agree that swing playing is pretty important. The closer you swing to the plane, the better you'll yep. play. And, yeah. You know, um, I mean, you know, decent rotation and just, you know, and just sensible, logical, fundamental teaching. I mean, I think everyone probably had a pretty decent grip. Um, you know, and as you alluded to before, the biggest challenge was Turner, who had come out as a tremendous young player. Yeah. He'd won, won early on. And then completely lost his game, couldn't hit the planet, lost his card. Um, you know, he was, he was done as a player, really. And, you know, fixing that must have been really tricky because it was no good when he came to you, was it? No, it wasn't. It was actually an interesting story there because I'm not sure that, um, uh, how, how, how you would tell this in a decent way. I'll try to keep the language sane and decent, but um, there was two great stories about Greg. One was on his wedding day when he said, um, there's one man in the room that's responsible for this lovely wine, because it, if it wasn't for Dennis Pugh, I couldn't afford this wine, which I thought was a great compliment. And the other compliment he made is when someone asked him what I did, he said, I've actually got no idea what he did, does do for me, but he stops everyone on this range ruining me. They weren't the exact words, but they were possibly the words we could use in this podcast. Uh, uh, so that was a great compliment. I didn't actually screw him up. How important is that, Dennis? Easy for young players to fall into a trap, isn't it? And there's any number of sharks circling in the world of professional golf, and the bigger the money's got, the more sharks have entered yeah. the pool. Well, there's a lot of money now if you're successful in coaching. So mm-hmm. the sharks come in the pool and they sell their own, uh, mm-hmm. their spills, what they think. But the premier thing, and this was something I was told a long time ago by Phil Ritson, the great South African coach who's since passed away. If you can't help someone, it's very important that you don't screw them up. Um, and, and a lot of people try and take their theories to extremes and end up ruining the player on the altar of their theories. And, you know, theories are theories. The real thing is how well does the player play? I love, I love, the best one is Butch Harmon's quote. And they asked him his theory. He said, I watch someone hit balls, I tell them something, and they hit the ball better. I think that's a proper coach. Mm. I don't care what yeah. they're telling them. But, you know, you tell them something, they hit the ball better. That's, to me, proper coaching. So, so Ledbetter sat at the feet of Ritson. Yeah. As a young man. That, that's right. Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So why was Phil such a great teacher? What sort of, what was the stuff he was teaching that, that meant Ledbetter latched onto him and, you know, a, a new kind of followed, I guess, didn't you really on that part? Oh, absolutely, Craig. It was very simple. It was the first time I'd heard that you'd make the big, the big muscles control the swing. The body controls the, 
power element in the swing. It controls everything. And you, you make sure your arms and, and the club work in plane with the rotating body. And I've never heard the word rotation. I must have used it a million times. It's made me probably every time I've used it, it's made me a few quid. So maybe a million quid. But the word rotation, yeah. I had never heard. And the fact was more passive hands. And at that time, it was more about accuracy because this was when the ball needed to be controlled. And you remember that. I mean, yeah. the ball had to be controlled. But since then, it's needed to be power. But interestingly enough, the power's come from the guys becoming gym athlete bodies. And so the transition onwards has been very good in technique because body controlling the swing for accuracy became body controlling the swing for power and accuracy. And that's what Phil told us. I'd never heard these words before. I was told, hit it with the right hand, get it as open as possible at the top, make your swing as upright as possible. And Johnny Miller was like the role model for everyone. And a bit of Jack Nicklaus thrown in and, and Greg Norman as well. They were the, probably the three dominant players of the 80s, but actually weren't helping people because they were so talented themselves that if you copied them, you ended up as a very inferior copy. Yeah, I was going to say that you, you couldn't have probably had, as great as they, those three guys were, you couldn't have had three poorer models to copy, could you? Or, or you, you, know, you, you would look at their swing, and your attempt at copying those swings would be a miserable second-rate yeah. failure. And, 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 you know, I, I, I think as David Lebert has often said, why, did we, why and what did we forget about what Sam Sneed was doing? Or Hogan, or, or, yeah. or even Bobby Jones as far back as that. But really what happened there, and you make a great point because you would be absolutely crucified as an idiot if you said Jack Nicholas, the greatest golfer before Tiger Woods, some say still the greatest golfer ever. Johnny Miller for a period of time, one of the greatest players for accuracy and power combination. And then Greg Norman, who when he was on song, he was the best player in the world. Those three players had swing techniques you didn't get better if you copied yourself because, like you say, you didn't actually make a very good copy of it and uh, that it actually played to their strengths but not yours. So any coach that said that was considered a nutcase and I was put in that bracket. So for a time, I was the idiot saying, why would you copy Jack Nicklaus, Greg Norman and Johnny Miller, three of the best players in the world, and I'm the idiot saying, don't copy them. So... You know, I got a, I got a little bit of protection in my back. I learned to take the knives out without too many stitches. <laughs> uh, beautifully put, Dennis. Has that changed today? If 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 ordinary players, if hobby players, as you like to call them, uh, <laughs> which always no, the knives the knives come in out through the front. Yeah, they that's come in right. through the, Straight into the chest, and uh, and that's okay as well because you know, I love winding them up on Twitter. I love the fact that someone that plays the game for a hobby can contest with someone who does it for a living. Yes, indeed. His views. And can, uh, that's part of the real world now. Can the hobby golfer copy the modern player more successfully than the Norman Nicholas Miller period that you just – is the modern professional golf swing, the, the more modern move we see, is that something that the recreational or hobby golfer can actually learn from and try to copy? Or is it still that case that there's a level of talent required to do what those guys do, which those of us who play for a yeah. hobby – don't have. That's probably, that's probably the, the, the sort of million-dollar question, really, is to say, well, the shaping and the way the golf swing looks for the modern player is much easier for a hobby golfer to copy in terms of 
a basic technique because no one's far off in the far ends of the spectrum with their swings. But, you know, I still think that if you're playing the game for a hobby and you're not going to a gym and you're not physically very talented, you probably need to swing your arms and, and, and use the lever system in your swing and the plane of your swing more important than the balance uh, because you're just physically not gifted enough to create and use the power of the body in the right way. Now, a lot of people would argue with that, but I personally think that if you're under the age of 25 and you're not working on your balance um, to become better, you're not working on the right thing. If you're over 25 and you're a 20 handicapper, you might want to consider the dynamics of impact, how to get good path, face control, angle of attack, control the plane to help you do that, and feel the swing more in the old-fashioned hands and arms way. You know, it's just my impression of working with all sorts of golfers. You can still get to coach the members of the Wisley where I'm based, and, you know, they're not all Francesco Molinari's or, or Rock Vicious. <laughs> no. Is that important, Dennis, as a coach? Is it important that you still work with recreational players, or is it would it not matter? Could you work simply with tour players, and that would still be that would be fine? Do you learn well, anything from from the hobby golfers? Not much. <laughs> <laughs> I learned how difficult golf can be. Uh-huh. Uh, when I play it myself, it's proven how difficult golf can be. Uh, I think that you need to have worked a lot with hobby golfers in the beginning gives you the skills of coaching. Once you work with top-level players, you only work with the hobby golfers if they're friends of yours or recommended by friends of yours. At this stage in my career, I'm not expanding lessons. I'm just helping friends of friends and people that are recommended because they love the game. And the one thing I haven't lost, guys, is I still love golf. And I would probably say that Jeff Ogilvy and Mike Clayton are the two other people I've met who love it as much as I do. And so therefore I've always a great affinity for Clates and Ogilvy, Jeff, because they love the game. I still love the game, which is crazy. I'm 64 years old and I'm still trying to beat my wife around a local club in Munich. I mean, it's crazy. <laughs> that is crazy. And that's very Clates. Clates, it seems to me, I want to get the thoughts of both of you on this, but I want to start with you, Clates. Coaching is essentially about communication, is it not? You have knowledge it needs to be communicated to a student and each student is different. It's probably better for you first actually dennis is that yeah yeah really the the crux of it is that you've got the same information but each student needs to receive it differently is that kind of the key to coaching oh absolutely and you know you said it's probably better that i speak but this is going to be my shortest answer i'm not known for short answers but i'd throw it back at clates and go what does a coach do for you because he's not just seen me he's had other great coaches that he's worked with and, and you know what is the skill that we bring because sometimes for me I do it instinctively I just say what I see sometimes I say it for too long so I'm going to shut up and listen <laughs> Clates well I, I think for most players it's to uh, the first thing is to show them the rat holes not to go down right. and I think probably probably even for amateur players you know, you see so many amateur players, oh, I lifted my head or I swung too fast or I hit, you know, hit, rolled my right hand too well. All things that you and I know are complete rubbish, Dennis. Yeah. Because, you know, but, because there are great players. Nick Price who swung fast. Now I can start to be moved ahead when she hit the ball. And other, you know, um, so, you know, amateur players always seem to be picking the wrong thing that, that they're doing wrong. And the, the best thing a coach can do is, Stop you going down rat holes and and show you actually what to work on, the right things to work on. 
Absolutely. And, and probably for every level of player, that's true. I mean, I know that over the years I've worked on things that were completely silly and, you know, going down the, as I said, going down the wrong hole. But, but you know, it's a, here's what you need to work on. This is why you get these bad shots. Work on this and don't work on anything else but this. And, you know, that, that's what simplifying the game is, I think, is that, you know, don't keep going off on tangents. And so many players go off on tangents and, and that, that they pick the wrong answer. You know, yeah. and, you know, probably the poorer they get, you, you see it with amateurs all the time. They come up with some harebrained idea of why they've had a bad job and it's got, you know, it's got nothing to do with that at all. You know, yeah. So, cliche, so, cliche thinking is my other yeah. thing. I hate cliches. Cliches are yeah. more hobby golfers. I love, I've loved hobby golfer. The reason I love hobby golfer is, it's exactly what they they are. You know, it's their, not their job. They do it as a hobby. And yet, some of them are so passionate that they give me a whole lot of stick on Twitter, which is actually going to make me really happy, so I shove it in a lot more. But, uh, you know, it's just crazy. It's their hobby. Um, you know, get some expert advice and practice that advice, and you're going to enjoy your hobby a lot more than following a load of cliches that the game's littered with and, and you know, Clint and I have been around the game long enough to know that cliches what kills the, the guys that play. Which is, yeah. Which is the same thing, Rod, as we deal with when we, you know, suggest changing a golf course, which, which is a bit like someone's golf thing. I mean, most members have no idea why their golf course is good or bad. And, and if you suggest a change through, as you say, this is, you know, whilst I love doing the, the, the design stuff, it's, it's much more than a hobby. But for most people, their knowledge of, the, the principles of good architecture are about the same as their knowledge of good good principles of a golf swing. But you would have heard more than, you know, as often as I have, oh, he ruined that hole, or he ruined that yeah. guy's swing. Yeah. All the, you know, the completely uninformed, ignorant reasons that, you know, and it becomes cliche and people spread it around and, you know, just, uh, yeah, we both deal with the same thing. But, but, but in completely different parts of the game. One golf course architecture, one golf yeah. swing technique. But, but the same hobby mentality criticism that gets directed to this both. And you just, you're right. You just shake your head and kind of move on, you know, but, but, um, but sorry, Craig, sorry. But the principles of good architecture and the principles of good technique have, you know, they've never really changed. No, absolutely. Yeah. And, but the, the cliche that they throw in is very hard to argue with because everyone knows you keep your head down and your left arm straight. Everyone knows you've got to have a tree there and a bunker there. And no, everyone don't know. You know, it's not, it's not that simple. And, and when you explain to them, I love the ones that go, ah, I understand. And I hate the ones who go, well, we've always done it this way and I know what I like. And I think, yeah, okay. Just do your thing. You're fine. You'll be fine. Yeah. They won't be fine, but there's sort of shortcut for me saying I don't care anymore. I want to move on. Is, you must have it with architecture. It's, oh, yeah. Yeah. It's the same it's problem the same for both, with, but, though, Dennis and Clates, yeah. isn't it? It's education, Clates. Part of the reason we started, go back to it again, part of the reason we started this podcast was to try to help people learn and educate people about the importance of architecture to the game more broadly and how much more you can enjoy the game if you have an interest and an understanding of it. It's an incredibly difficult thing to do to educate people out of habitual thinking, Clates, and the same is true for you, isn't it, Dennis? But, Clates, what do you, don't you think it's 
I love your story that from Royal Queensland about the, the centre line bunker. And I want you to tell it again. I've had you tell it a oh, dozen yeah. times, but I think it's extremely telling about the way people think about this stuff. Well, yeah. So, Dennis, we rebuilt Royal Queensland on the on the nine poles, long par five with a 60-yard wide fairway from, from side to side, 60 yards wide off the tee. And we put a, a small, well, we put a small bunker right in the middle. And there was a, there was a meeting with the members and the captain said, this guy over here hates the bunker. He's going to ask you a question about the bunker. Just be prepared for your answer. You know, and it's such a simple answer. And he got up and said, you know, that bunker on the, I know I vote's ridiculous. He said, I had a perfect drive and go in that bunker. <laughs> yeah. And I said, well, I didn't say it, but I thought, well, aside from the complete stupidity of, well, well, no, let me put it another way. Jeff Ogilvy has a great line. He said, the quality of a shot is measured by its position relative to the next shot. Yeah. So you would never say that a drive into a, into a bunker in the middle of the fair was a perfect shot. It might have gone straight. It might have gone in the air and you might have flushed it with a great swing, but it wasn't a perfect shot relative to its, the one that was following. So I said, okay. So here's the bunker in the middle of the fairway. Um, from the right edge of the bunker, to the right edge of the fairway is about 30 yards. So that, you would agree that's a decent width fairway. And he said, yeah, yeah, that's not unreasonable. And I said, from the left edge of the bunker to the left edge of the fairway is about 25 yards. So that's it's narrow. But if you go down that side, there's a better line down for your second shot. So he, he understood the strategy. I said, so according to you, I said, if we just took the bunker, and the whole left side of the fairway we made rough, that would be okay, wouldn't it? Because then the bunker would just be on the left side of the fairway and it would be 30 yards <laughs> right of it. And he said, I've never thought of it like that. So it was like a light bulb went off in his head. And, and in fairness, he came up and said, you know, that was a good point. You know, now I kind of get it. But, you know, at every level of golf, teaching, architecture, you're yeah. dealing with people who don't think much about it, who just come to the, you know, that's crazy, that sounds stupid, that must be stupid. You know, yeah. my mate down the road said that Dennis Pugh's clueless and that model. Yeah. I told you he was going to hit it in the water or Augusta. You know, yeah, that's because he swings no good. You know, yeah. really? Yeah. yeah. But, um, it does feel good when you convert one. You get a hundred, yeah. you get a hundred that go against you. But if you convert one, you think, yeah, I've done an okay job there. Mm. Well done, Clay. <laughs> that's right. But I it, think it's right, his only success, Dennis. That's why I keep bringing it well, up. It's the only <laughs> argument. <laughs> I'd like to think it wasn't, but it could only be one. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Clay. Yeah. Uh, right. I think the point Frank was making on, on the Golf Channel was that when he spoke about Dennis was that and there's, you, you'll correct me because I'll get this wrong. Uh, he, he said that you would stand up in front of coaches at European summits and you were talking about the relationship of the face to the plane. Yeah. And they all poo-pooed you and thought you were talking complete rubbish until Trackman proved that your theory was right and they were wrong. So could you talk to a bit about that and yeah, how you was, figured out that? It wasn't so, yeah, it's true. It, it, it started, I went to a conference in um, 1992 in Dallas when uh, Pink Haney was talking and he was talking about some new ideas on ball flight and why face and plane and path and angle of attack and centeredness of strike. And he was coming up with some new theories. And in America, they were listening. So about four years later, I did a conference in Europe and basically shared the whole information and got booed off the stage. Now, given my ego, which means I really don't give a damn. I didn't mind. I shared my information. 
And if you're going to be a straight talker, you're going to get a lot of people who criticize you. It's never bothered me at all. But I walked off that stage and thought, these people are, are way behind what it's at. Um, and it wasn't until a few years later that everything that I'd learned, see, I wasn't making it up. I just learned stuff and thought, that made sense to me. I can pass that on. But as I started passing it on, not everyone wanted to listen. That was fine as well. But I was surprised at just how entrenched people were with, we've always done it this way. And even if you've always done it the wrong way, it's better to do it the way you know than the new way. And that was silly to me. So, yeah, I was booed off a stage or two along the way, but didn't matter, did it? <laughs> but but Haney was very much a John Jacobs guy, right? Yeah, but he started questioning what John had been saying. He started saying that he saw things that were not happening of the way they did. And the other guy was Jim McLean for a long okay. time down at Doral. And he showed me some videos where he was swinging the club way to the left and the ball was starting way to the right. Obviously, the face was way open. But, you know, you were saying that face was dictating the original path that the ball would go on and the swing direction wasn't. And everyone thought it was the opposite until Trackman came along. And then, wow. Um, and even now, people think that there's some genie inside the Trackman telling them stuff. Trackman <laughs> is a name for a launch monitor like Hoover is a name for a cleaner. There's, it's just yeah. called a launch monitor. It doesn't give lessons. It tells people, I mean, my, my scales say, you've eaten and drunk too much, you weigh too much, stop eating. <laughs> but then they tell me to stop eating and drinking, but that's the obvious thing. If I'm swinging 20 degrees left with an open club face and hitting it off the toe, that ball ain't hooking. That ain't going to be a hook. So let's, let's just get to deal with that and fix it. So the pros that are educated, the coaches that are educated and the players, can see it as a tool to help them. Those that want to live in the past think it's the devil incarnate and way of ruining players because they're too fixed in monitors. It's a bit like saying the scales are ruining your diet. Of course they're not. You're eating too much, you're too heavy. It's that simple. Are there dangers with TrackMan though, Dennis, particularly for good players? Can an obsession with trying to hit the correct quote-unquote numbers overtake the uh, focus on hitting good golf shots. And where's the balance yeah, in that between technique and, and hitting the shots when you have to? Because you only get one chance in a tournament. You don't get you another know, go. Absolutely comes around to the point we just discussed about 20-odd minutes ago where we said about the difference between swinging well and playing golf. And TrackMan will help you swing well, but it don't help you play golf. There's one thing for sure. When you're out in the golf course, you can't take your TrackMan, you can't take your video, you can't talk to your coach. You've got to play the game. And we talked about the greatness of Johnny Miller, Jack Nicklaus, and Greg Norman. Is Whatever they did with the club, their swing suited their physique and their mentality and their ability to get the ball around the course. And don't forget, short game. You know, you've got to be able to uh, complete your misses as well as your hits. And people talk to me about the importance of putting. No one's ever won a tournament just because they putted good but they've lost a lot of tournaments because they didn't pass them, mm. if you see what I mean. Yeah. Is that theory so right, Dennis, that, that the winner each week – sorry, Clates, is, is the winner each week no, the guy who hits yeah. the ball well and putts well? Is that the truth about who wins? Most weeks. Yeah. Most weeks, yeah. yeah. One or the other won't do it. Sorry, Clates, I jumped yeah. on top of you there. It's my, my mistake. Uh, I was going to ask about – I've always thought, and no doubt you probably do too, that although we've never – we've tweeted about it but never spoken really – 
in depth about it much. But Pedro O'Malley was, for those who don't know, was a, was a terrific Australian player, won in Europe a bunch of times, very solid goal swing. But I always thought, when I saw Frankie Molinari play for the first time, I thought, well, there's just an Italian Pedro O'Malley. Yeah. Very, very similar body shape, very similar looking goal swing. I, I don't know if they were similar in, in reality, but they look very similar, very solid, played very much the same game. And having watched Molinari now for years, it always seemed a knock on him was, well, he played like O'Malley, including being a pretty lousy putter. Yeah. But would you say that the two differences are that uh, Molinari being 20 years later has developed more power and he's become a better putter than uh, O'Malley ever did? Is that a fair oh. summation of the two guys? Yeah, I mean, the thing about Francesco is that up until three years ago, I would say he was like the way Pom played. He was accurate. He wasn't powerful. He wasn't short, but he he wasn't a long hitter, and he was suspect. When he was having a good day on the greens, it was fine, but if he had a bad day, he had a very bad day. And I still think that Peter O'Malley hit the middle of the club more than any golfer I ever coached over the years. Wow, that's a big rap. Been <laughs> no, Pom just didn't miss the, I mean, could go months, years without missing the sweet spot. Wow. And that's something that people didn't appreciate with him because he wasn't a flashy golfer and he did part as Clay said poorly. But three years ago, Francesco and I had a talk about, you know, he was coming into his mid thirties. What did he want to do? And I said, if you want to be the best you can be, you've got to be longer. You've got to get more power and you've got to become a better putter. So let's get people on board that can help you. Trainers. You know, I don't know what training, I'm, I'm in a golf coach. I don't know what training, gym training will make you longer, but I know it's important. And I've, I'm not a putting coach. And those guys came on board. And then Dave Audred, who's the performance coach, who's more known for rugby than golf, came in. And he's the Rottweiler on the team. He made him a nasty, stronger golfer. And Francesco learned to become silent assassin, absolutely disciplined to just getting on with his job and not getting affected by it. What else? So what happened, in, and I know certain people don't like it, but we developed Team Molinari. And I was a factor in saying, it's not me and you, Frankie. We need more people to help you become the best you can be. That's a very modern story, isn't it, Dennis? The whole idea of team and, and the length of that. that is it, you would, you've seen all the changes over this. Is it more competitive at the top now? And is there still scope for a player to do it without a team? We see Tiger doesn't work with a coach at the moment, whether that changes at some point. We don't know. Is it possible for a player to succeed without a team of specialised uh, fitness, strength, coach, putting, yeah. <laughs> psychology? Uh, yeah, I don't think it is now for a younger player, someone coming through, because the quality of the teams they assemble, I think if you're at the end of your career, sort of Paul Drake Harrington and Tiger Woods, players like that, who can, they've, I mean, Tiger knows what's needed now, mm-hmm. and he knows what he needs to do, and but let's be fair, he's, what's he, 42, 43? 43. More yeah. towards, he's coming more towards the end of a fantastic career. I still think he's got more wins in him and maybe more majors, but it's towards the end. I think that's He thinks fair. that now so, too, Dennis, and that's one of the things makes him so dangerous, I suspect, after Sunday yeah. a couple of weeks ago. Now that he believes it, we're all in trouble. Well, yeah, but, you know, the kids coming through can't say, well, Tiger does it on his own. I do it on their own because mm. they've not got Tiger's experience of having – Three great coaches, Butch Harmon, 
a legend. Hank Haney, a legend, and, and, and Sean Foley, a legend. You know, people don't like Sean because he's a modern coach with track man, but, you know, Justin Rose and he have worked brilliantly, and he doesn't get all that credit because Tiger Woods. You know, um, okay, you worked with Tiger Woods for a few years. It didn't quite work out, but your others, you know, it's like having one bad record if you're a pop artist. You have one flop, and suddenly all the rest of it was rubbish as well. I think media get on the cases of these. You know, the coaches like myself get a lot of praise when it's going well, but we're the first people to take the ammunition fired in our um, fired at us if we if players play badly. And it's just the way it is. It's part and parcel. I'm in no way complaining because I've been doing it a long while, and I love the fact in the intro you said 25 years. It makes me a lot younger <laughs> I than I really am. I realised yeah, how badly you. I missed the mark there when, when we started no, no, talking. No, no. Geezer now. I've been taking the flat for a long while. It doesn't really matter, but it is part of the job. And, you know, opinions are opinions. You know, the, well, we won't go where the opinions come from. Like everyone else has got one. Yeah. Dennis, one of our yeah. pet subjects on this show is the distance the ball goes for all sorts of reasons. And you've yeah. said there quite openly that in the modern game, the first thing Francesco needed to do was get longer. Has that yeah. been... Is that a change? Distance has never been a bad thing for a professional to have, but I feel like it's never been such an important weapon in the bag. Is that a good, bad, or indifferent yeah. thing for the game? What do you well, reckon? It's just a fact, you know. I mean, Clates grew up in an era when he played the game where ball control, power was useful, but ball control was important. I mean, I played on tournament golf when, you know, before Clates. Can you imagine, even before but, Clates? Was there tournament golf head. before Clates? I'm not sure we've ever heard of such yeah, a thing. Yeah, we even had some still shafted for seven heads, not <laughs> just after Hickory. Anyway, Wooster would bash out, Norman would bash out drivers and they would be carrying them around 240. <laughs> Sounds pathetic now, doesn't it? 240, it does. they might run out 260. And a short hitter like myself might carry 210, it run out 220. That sounds stupid. That's seven irons now, but that's the way the game was played then. And now I'm 64 years old and I carry the ball 240 off the tee. Now that isn't logical. There's something gone wrong with the game when that happens. But here's the bit I do as a coach. I know my good friend John Huggin. I know Clates might have an opinion on this, but I don't even care. The facts are the ball goes a long way. The facts are if you want to be a competition player now, and you're in your 20s or 30s, you better hit the ball a long way. Let's not argue whether it's good or bad. Let's get doing all the things that's going to hit the ball a long way. And and then we can argue later on whether it's a good thing for the game. I'm not saying it is. I don't like the way the game's gone, but as a coach, I have to be going there and saying, okay, the game's now about blitz as far as you can and then work out what to do next. Mm. Unfortunately, that's the facts. Yeah, no, I get that. Yeah, I think. well, no, no doubt that's true. Yeah. yeah, no doubt that's true. And Clates, if um, you were thirty years younger, you'd be trying to get longer, wouldn't you? That's what you would be doing as a player. Well, I, I you know, I play with these young kids, and I sometimes regret that. I think, wow, if I was them now, I'd be driving the ball. How much? How cool would it be to drive it three hundred and twenty yards? But I mean, no one in no one in our generation drove it anywhere near that. I mean, Greg no. was long, but you, know, you you watch these kids now, like it looks like it's so much fun to hit the ball that far. I mean, as you know, Des, my only issue is that what it does to the golf courses because it makes it, you know, it, it renders so many great golf courses. Oh, yeah. Sad. Know, it's, Sad, really. But, I, I mean, I, I guess, Mike, if they rolled the ball back, 
the better players, I think, would have more of an advantage than the other players. Yeah. Because, you know, they would go back to, you know, rather than, you know, they're back hitting longer clubs into the greens. And, and that's always going to advantage the better ball strikers. Yeah. I mean, I no question that you're right. But what I would say is that I've stopped even arguing that point because it is what it is, as Tiger would say. And, you know, my job is to coach good players to play well right now. If my job was to argue and, and, and use whatever influence I've got to change the RNA and USGA's opinion on golf, which is zero influence, by the way, I would say that that would be a fair point. But my job is to get players yeah. to play as well as they can. And right now, unfortunately, smash it, attack, attack, smash. And, you know, people used to talk about strategy. And, you know, unless you've got really great architecture that forces strategy, the only strategy you need to know now is how far is it to the pin? Because you yeah. basically whack it as hard as you can, whack it at the pin and try and hold as many putts. Um, because the man that putts well, who's a good ball striker, will win. Mm. The guy that putts well who can't hit the ball to the greens is going to make cuts, but he ain't going to win too many tournaments. It was the Spieth myth, wasn't it, for a couple of years? He's just a good putter. Yeah. You're not good at much else. Yeah. He's just a good putter. What a myth that, that was. was. That was a classic cliche thinking as well, you know, that, that whole way of he's just a good putter. Look yeah. how good he is. Yeah. And this idea that yeah, he's a short hitter off the tee, and he, he's a good ball striker. He just he, He's a proper player. No question. His, his iron statistics a couple of years ago were off the charts how good he was yeah. Um, yeah. from the first. How much yeah. longer did Frankie get? Can I call him Frankie or can only you call him Frankie? Well, we all call him Frankie now. He's, he's Francesco um, has become Fran. He's Frankie. He's whatever you want to call him. Is, uh, as he gets closer to world number one, yeah. he's going to get more names called at him. Yeah. There was a lot of bad names called at him at Augusta <laughs> when uh, he hit it in the water. They were all supportive. I mean, his joke afterwards, he's become the most popular man at Augusta by hitting the ball in the water at 12. But, uh, uh, yeah, it was tough. That was a tough afternoon. Of course but, it was. Uh, yeah, what, what did he do about hitting it further? Well, certainly uh, he put on, he was ball, we work on ball speed with a driver. And there's a reason for that I'll tell you about. But basically he was working on a 165 ball speed, carrying it around 265, 270 yards. Pretty good length, but not great. He's now on close to one. His best measured was 175 at Augusta two weeks ago, and he carried it 302. So, yeah, that is a lot of yardage mm. for someone who's 36 years old playing mm. in his 16th year as a professional. You know, you don't often see that gaining. And that was done through technique um, and physique and the, the mental ability to take off the brakes and not try to hit fairways and just go smash hell for leather. Let's see where it finishes up. We can play from wherever it goes. Clayton's as a player. So who did you of... work with that? Sorry. Was it, was it that, that, is it, is it Lee Cox? Is that his name? Yeah, yeah. Lee Cox. So is he... Yeah, carry on, Mike, Clayton. So is he the long drive champion or the guy that teaches the long drive champion? He's the guy that specializes in teaching long drivers. And one of his great clients, one of his great protege students is Joe Miller. Who, oh, okay, if, that's him, yeah. yeah okay. if, I, if I stood on your shoulders <laughs> and if someone else stood next to you would approximately get the size of Joe Miller. And Joe can really power a golf ball. But Lee has other pupils. And 
Lee and I got to be good pals, and I, I brought him in and, and uh, to our golf college and said, you know, show us what you do. And I'm a great believer, bring in professionals, pay them their fees and learn from them. And some of the stuff he taught me, I've introduced into Francesco Swing. Let's be fair, right from the start, I've always said, you know, we need help, we'll go and get help. This is not about just me and you, Frankie. This is about getting you to bring in all the experts. But with Lee, he's not actually had lessons with Lee. Lee's given me information that I could then transfer in our lessons on the practice tee. So, uh, and one of the things is about creating power is that you don't create power from the swing. You create power from the energy in the golfer and you transfer that energy via the swing by eliminating all the breaks. And that's a whole new concept which will blow people's minds, but that's what we do. We don't have any breaks in the swing. Now, breaks are the sort of things that give you control. So you better have a pretty decent swing framework before you take all the breaks off. Mm. <clears throat> I want to ask you about a couple of things, Dennis. So, Sorry, Clay, you go right. first, then I'll, then no, I'll ask Dennis. No, no, you go. No, okay. no, you go. You go. You said way back when you were talking about working with, with Frankie and getting this new attitude, you, met, you said nasty. You had to get nasty that there's been yeah. a change there. Tease that out a little bit for me because he still seems like one of the world's nicest blokes, and I'm sure that he is. But I feel that there's a bit of there's a bit of that about Adam Scott too. Adam Scott had a couple of nasty years when Steve Williams first got on the bag, where he walked differently, he looked different, he seemed to have a different attitude, and he was really successful. Talk a bit about that and personality and what role that plays in successful golf at the top level. Well, the big thing there that nasty isn't the impression of being rude to everyone, it's being harder with yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, does that make sense? It does, yeah. And Absolutely. So what you do is you don't accept situations where you try to make yourself comfortable and say, right, okay, I'm going to be comfortable. And what nasty is about being able to cope with the times when you're really uncomfortable and you're in the zones you don't want to be in, be in. And, you know, you, you actually have to work with your mind and say, okay, this is not where I want to be, but I know how to deal with it, rather than, you know, folding and just saying, okay, tomorrow will be a better day. And also the nastiness is the willingness to work on stuff that, you know, if you're, if you're a short hitter, you want to be longer, you've got to work on stuff that takes you out of your comfort zone. So maybe nasty is a strong word, but not being comfortable is a, is, perhaps a politer way of Mm -hmm. saying the same thing. Mm -hmm. The second part of that, which I'm intrigued by, Dennis, is the commitment that it takes, as you said, at the age of 36, 16 years of professional, to add Mm -hmm. 30 yards of distance. That's an extraordinary commitment, isn't it, mentally and physically, to do that? Yeah. I mean, not everyone's going to do that. They're just not that type of character. But Francesco uh, definitely decided that he didn't want to just dribble his career into maybe, you know, half a dozen, 10 wins on the European tour and, you know, God knows, 25 million, whatever he's won. Yeah, and, and, he's do- he know, was doing all right out of the game, wasn't he? Well, there was no financial <laughs> imperative yeah, yeah. to get longer. He's going all right. <laughs> you know, we're not talking about someone who was down on their uppers here. We're talking about someone who was pretty successful in the in the run of things, but he wasn't achieving. You know, he didn't want to just make the top 50 and get invited to world WGC events and stuff like that. He wanted to contend in majors. And, and you know, and there's a lot of bravery in actually saying that openly. 
you know, just saying to your coach, I don't want this. I want to get better. And that was the discussion we had. And I, I said, I'm glad you said that because I don't think you're anywhere close to as good as you can be. You can be a lot better than this. And I think that encouraged him to open up even more. And then we brought more people on board and said, let's just do it. And, you know, there's been plenty of people along the way. I've got a list on my phone of all the snipes at Team Molinari, and one time I'll come out with them, but they're not ready to come yet. But they've had so many snipes, and everyone's been, yeah, but we've got you there, didn't we? Uh, and we'll continue to do that. You know, there's been lots of things that should a player have changed. Why are they, why are they putting so much emphasis on power? What about the putting? Well, we're doing everything. We don't leave any stone unturned. Um, not everyone likes their hobby horse. There's another one used to that great word, hobby. Um, they've got their hobby horses, and they want to prove points in everything. And my job is not to argue anymore. I've stopped doing that on Twitter. I just say that my job is to coach tour pros, in particular Francesco and Ross, and you can all watch and take from it what you want. If you don't want to take anything, that's fine too. One of my favorite hating ones. You, you're, <laughs> you're entitled to your own opinions, but not your own facts. So the results are speaking for yeah. themselves at this stage, aren't they, Dennis? Clayton. Yeah, I love every so often. I'm oh, sorry to interrupt there, yeah. Rob, but every so often my ego sends a picture of the Open Championship <laughs> on my bed. <laughs> the a claret jug on my bed and goes, there we are. Some, Happy people are taking the claret jug to bed with them. Some of my favourite pictures have been your pictures <laughs> of uh, the, the claret jug. Clates, as a player, can you imagine what it requires for Molinari, a successful professional by any measure, except the win column, to do what he's done? It's impressive, isn't it? Yeah, it's impressive. Well, I mean, Faldo, I think you'd agree, Dennis, was the biggest example in our time of throwing something that was very successful out and starting completely again. And that worked really well too. But, I mean, um, Frankie didn't look like he changed. I mean, Fellow completely changed his swing. It looked much different after than it did before. But Frankie's swing looks the same to me. It's just, you know, and I think Faldo said subsequently that you know, the, 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 the things that took him 18 months to work out, he could have done much quicker now with, with the aid of launch monitors and, Sort of you know, better knowledge and different teaching, and does that make any sense? Yeah, it does to me. Mm. I, I love the idea that people talk about Hogan and Snead. They didn't have launch monitors. I bet they wish they had it done. I mean, <laughs> it would have. You know, I didn't. I didn't have a mobile phone when I was growing up. I wish I had it done. Mm. Yeah, you yeah. know, it's it's uh, you know people say well. What's the greatest teaching aid ever? I think it's a mobile phone with a swing app on it, which shows you your swing. You can check it. You can see it. You can then tune that another app into your TrackMan monitor. If you can't afford one, you can access one at your club for rent it perhaps. And and then, of course, is the personal coach, you know, just having someone that will look at your swing and got some intelligence and tell you what you need to be. And the key word is the best you can be because whatever – level you play golf at, if you can end up the best you can be, you've done your job as a player and perhaps as a coach. Yeah, and the, the reality that that best might be 12 doesn't sit comfortably with some people. Why do us hobby golfers resist going to see a PGA professional, Dennis, when every single player on every tour in the world, almost to a, a man and a woman, has a coach, yet we refuse to do it. But we buy a new driver every six months. Yeah, I think people would prefer to prefer to pay five hundred pounds for a driver than for 
10 lessons or whatever. I mean, my lessons are a little more expensive than that. But, uh, <laughs> um, but you know what I'm saying is that the fully qualified PGA Pro can help any golfer and possibly more so than a brand new driver, especially if it's not been properly fitted by a PGA fitting professional. I mean, the key word here is Professional Golfers Association train people to help players play better, and it's still not fully accepted. I know if it's independence that golf breeds or whatever it is, but if there's one message is come out of this is nobody's done it on their own for a long while now, and the people that are doing it on their own had teams behind them before, so they know what they're doing. Uh, it, it's an individual sport, but at the highest level, it's a team sport, and that, that's the beauty of this uh, that's the reason why I can make a living, guys. It's a, and it's yeah. affordable to do that now, isn't it? It wasn't really affordable in your day, Clates, was it, to have a team? Could you make enough money to have a team? You'd have to be at the very top of the game, wouldn't you? Well, no one thought of it. I mean, we, we all still revering guys like Peter Thompson and Graham Marsh and Neil Coles who just, you know, everyone did it on their own. And just having a teacher was almost revolutionary, really. I mean, there were so many guys who, who didn't even have that. So it's completely changed, in, and for the better. I think that techniques are so much more, I want, well, I shouldn't say better, Dennis, but, but they're certainly more orthodox. Orthodox. You know, yeah. You know, if you look at Frankie Molinari or Peter O'Malley, you would say that they're very orthodox golfers. That They look very correct. That They look like there's not much that can go wrong with them. They look very repeatable. They look like they'll go on as they play into their 40s. You know, yeah. things that you never would have said, you know, in our generation. I mean, no one ever would have said about Peter Fowler's swing in 1983 that he'd have been in the top five on the European senior tour for all, you know, pretty much every year of his career because his swing then was lousy. It's much better now because yeah. it's become more orthodox. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's just strange the way. People have had individual styles, but there's less of them now. Mm. Excuse me. There's less of them now, and I think there'll be less in the future. But there's always room. This is the great thing about our gameplays. There's always room for the individual. Mm-hmm. Oh, exactly. You see, Barbara, and some of these new kids coming along, Dennis, who really pound the ball frightening distances, the champs and the Hovlands and that. Matthew, Matthew Wolf, Michael Wolf. Matthew Wolf, is it? Who's got an unusual, very unusual looking technique, but. My goodness, effective yeah. at the college golf level, yet to be tested, obviously, at the PGA Tour level. But there's a wave of players coming, Dennis, and you probably see a few of them coming through your area too who make today's I players look short off the tee. Well, we've got kids at the college that, uh, that I, I coach at, that I co-own in London, where we've got two kids that can go over 130 mile an hour club speed. Wow. I mean, that is... Unbelievable. They're, they're, you know, they're plus one, plus two golfers, but they've got that potential to get so much better as they back to the idea of playing the game as well. But if you're playing the game with clubs that go out there that far, it's a lot easier game to play. Mm. Uh, the game will change. The next Tiger Woods, the next big game changer will hit the ball so much further and still be able to, you know, keep the ball in play and score with it. And, He'll be the next superstar player. And we're looking at full speeds of around 195 to 200 miles an hour. Bear in mind, 
the long driving guys are getting 225 on their balls. Mm -hmm. So there's potential for one of these guys to just be able to turn it on on the golf course. And then he has such an advantage on the field. And all the things Mark Brody does with his analysis show as much as people don't like it, putt for dough. You know this idea, drive for show, putt for dough? If you can't drive, you haven't got a show. It's no <laughs> worth putting. You ain't got any dough to putt for. Yeah. That's my yeah. words on that one. Absolutely. Last one from so me. So 190 Dave. ball speed, how far? The 190 ball speed, how far is that going in the air? Is that 300 and something plus? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah long yeah. over that. I what mean, 340? Yeah, it depends on contact and all the different launch angles. It's, you know, so you can't just equate yardage to one speed. But, you know, today at the Wisley, you know, we're in, we're still in decent weather here, but Ross Fisher was doing what we call speed training and he's pumping 320 yard carries on 180 ball speed. So, you know, that means everything else is pretty sound as well. He has a challenge. His challenge each day is 120 mile an hour with the club head and 180 with the ball. And every day in the last two weeks, he's managed to beat his challenge. Only just, but he beats yeah, it. Yeah. That's, you know, part of the so does, it. does that translate when he stands on the first tee at Wentworth in the PGA? 120 balls, speed 180. So, sorry, 120 club head speed, 180 ball speed, or does he tone that down a bit when he's oh, he probably tones it down a bit. But, you know, if you can pump it up to those figures when you're in training, speed training, as I call it, the great news is, is when you wind it down a bit, you're still 118 and 176 yeah. or something like that, you know. And uh, the great thing is, is that you've got to find out if you take all the brakes off. A, do you crash, in which case your technique's pretty poor, and B, if you take the rates off, where does the ball go for power? And if you can use a little less power and still keep it in play, well, then you've got a player who can take it out on the first tee at Wentworth and take it around the West Coast. Wow. It's uh, – <clears throat> I don't know. I, I'm with Clates on this, Dennis. I, I don't think overall for the game – it's a great development, but it's fascinating nonetheless, isn't it? It's incredibly impressive to see what some of these young guys could do, and some of those long drive guys. It's an it's extraordinary yeah. talent, isn't it? And and power, and yeah. it's amazing. But is it going to be good for the game in the long term? I I don't know. I just can't. I don't know that it's good for the game. I agree. You know, guys, I'm not trying to say this is no, 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 no. I know you're not. Yeah, but yeah. it's your job, isn't it? This is what it is. Yeah, it's my job to get people with money playing golf tournaments yeah. and. The way to do that, the easiest way is to the ball further and uh, and take it from there and do all the other good stuff. It's yeah. you know, but it's not just long driving. But if you haven't got a long drive, it's just about long driving. You know? Which is and people hate to hear me say it, but that's the truth of the matter now. It's so. I mean, my theory that the freaking one generation going all the way back to Ted Ray, then Snead, then Nicholas. Then daily, the freaking one generation has always become the norm in the next. So, yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, the last, you know, since we saw Cameron Champ play, I said, you know, in ten years' time, he's going to be the norm. That's what, that's where the ball's going to be going in ten years. Where he's hitting it, and, and there'll be there'll be fifty or a hundred guys will figure out how he's doing it. Well, absolutely. And right now, the magic ball speeds on tour in America is one seventy to one eighty. That's the window you really want to be in. If you're not in that window with your driver, it's very difficult, if it's not impossible, to contend and win. But in five years' time, my prediction is 180 to 190. Wow. And yeah. in 20 years' time, 
mm-hmm. assuming nothing changes, 190 to 200. Yeah. And that is me being fairly conservative there. It could yeah. happen quicker. I don't believe it'll take any longer than that. So, Pete, Pete Jack Nicholas, what was your, what would you guess his ball speed was at, you know, 1965 at Augusta when he decimated the golf course? What, what do you, what's your guess of what his ball speed would have been? I hate to say it, but if he busted 160, maybe 162, something like that, he'd be, yeah. you know, that would be persimmon ball, a persimmon club with a ballata ball, but it'd be pretty hard, you know. Um, to do much more than that. And so, so if you gave 1965 Jack Nicklaus the titanium headed graphite shaft to drive with a modern Pro V and the exact same swing, what would his ball speed be? Oh, he'd be out there. He'd be, uh, he'd be one of the boys out there. He'd be the Bubba yeah. Watson and yeah. Justin yeah. Johnson. And, you know, you look at his physique and the way he hit the ball for his age. He was the long boy, long ball hitter boy of his age. And, you know, basically they would, all equal out, Hogan and Sneed, you know, Bobby Jones and Barden and all the players that we go back in history, people love to have that game of who would be the best of the best and all that. But given the equipment, they'd all learn to hit it. They, they, the big players have always been the big players. You know, that that's what separated them. You mentioned that earlier, and that's still the case. The, 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 yeah, the, the game's almost only one part of it, isn't it? There's a whole other aspect of playing golf at the top level, which is to do with attitude and emotion and how you manage yourself, which is all extremely important. Yeah. In, in a funny way, Dennis, does the, the increasing distance that the pros can hit it off the tee make wedge play that much more important? Does it actually make yeah. the shorter shots <laughs> become more important than they have been previously as well? Well, this is, this is the whole thing, is that the next area that the – you know, everyone wants to say, okay, it's about driving and putting. It's actually about driving, wedging and putting because the guys that can drive it a long way can get their wedge shots inside nine feet. Once you get your ball inside nine feet, you're on a 50-50 chance of making that putt. Now, people don't want to hear that, but on a tour green, around about nine feet, the odds are 50-50. Uh, and the really good putters get it into 12 feet, and if they can keep the odds around 50-50 for them, that's their edge on putting. So that's where people say the good putters are the guys that can putt from 12 to 15 foot, like it's nine foot. I'm sorry to get all you know, numbers no, up. No, not at all. Not so what then happens is you go, right, well, let's get Dustin Johnson out with his uh, launch monitor and let's get him hitting wedges from 120 yards or whatever and let's get him inside six feet because the odds are he's going to make those. Yeah. And you know, that's, that's where the wedge play becomes really important because basically the worst putter on tour and the best putter on tour are about equal from 20 feet. It's, it's when you get outside 30 feet, the good putters don't three putt and the bad putters do. Mm-hmm. And when you get inside sort of, uh, nine feet, the good putters hold a marginally few more. Now talking tour level now. Yeah, 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 of course. Um, yeah. Inside nine feet. So. You know, there's not a lot of room to really impress with a putter, but if you keep giving yourself six footers, you can almost hit it with the back of the putter and still score. You know, it's it's not that difficult if you keep giving yourself six footers for birdie. It's a whole different game, isn't it, Clates? It start at the end, say, well, I need to be inside nine feet. How am I going to do that? I need to hit wedges into the greens. How am I going to do that? I need to get my ball speed to 180. <laughs> it's not the way you learnt, yeah. was it? <laughs> 
You've just summed up professional golf. Pretty much. Do that and you make make loads of money. But it's completely different, isn't it? It's totally the opposite to what you learned to do, Clay. Isn't it? Is it not? Well, yeah, we just... Yeah, we just played golf. We just got the ball on the fairway and, you know, you know, we're hitting lots of five irons and four irons and trying to get them on the green. And But there was a great amateur player, Kevin Hartley, in Australia, who told me years ago, he said, the key to golf is get the ball up around the ground on the par fives and wedge it inside six foot and hold it and you'll shoot 68. And that was Peter Thompson's theory too, really. Yeah. But, you know, and, and Hartley and Thompson were both tremendous ball strikers who, you could write it down that probably hit 13, 14, 15 greens every round or, or most rounds. So they understood even back then that the key was hitting wedges inside six foot and making the putt. And hardly, you know, what he was saying was the par fives are where you're going to do it. So get on the four par fives and get it inside six foot for three shots. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you're already so, four under on yeah, a normal right. call. Yeah. You know, yeah. if you do that, you're four under. Now you can afford a few errors and a few lucky putts that go in for you and the odd shot close and you're on your low numbers so that's that's the advice you know people if the only way to keep giving yourself six footers is to keep giving yourself wedges into green because yeah. it's very hard to hit six irons consistently to six feet yeah indeed we can't let you go dennis with ask without asking about the masters after what was an extraordinary performance last year at canoosting playing with Tiger in the last group on Sunday, which you can't imagine, it doesn't matter where he goes in the world, Tiger has plenty of support, and you mentioned already what was, what was going on at Augusta last week, it would have been amped up, but Francesco stood up so incredibly well on Sunday yeah. last year, he must have been bitterly disappointed, I assume, with what happened at Augusta. After that, do you guys sit and dissect, or is it that's just golf? You can't win all the time, and sometimes on Sunday afternoon it doesn't happen. How does that unfold for you? Uh, well, we're meeting up tomorrow. Oh, okay. and, uh, <laughs> right. It's our first meeting tomorrow after he drove me back. We got in the car together and drove back from Augusta back to the house he rented, and you know he was pretty easy. He wasn't he wasn't in a mess or anything. He was pretty uh, aware of what happened. He, he saw where he made a couple of errors, just two errors, a bad decision on 12 to go at the flag and some bad swings on 15. I thought he was funny because he said, I think the best shot I hit on 15 was the fourth shot. I said, that was a drop. And he went, yeah, exactly. I dropped it well. <laughs> when your best shot on a par five is your fourth shot of the drop, you know you're having a tough hole. Yeah. So he even had his humour going home that day. And We'll see if he's still in a good humour tomorrow because he lost. He did miss the cut at Hilton Head last week, but it's no surprise when you've just had the Masters he's had. Uh, he's had a good year so far. He's played well at Bay Hill. He played well in the match play, finishing third in the match play playoffs and uh, finishing fifth at the Masters. You know, these are these are pretty good things. So that's not, you know, no, not too many tears shed for Francesco right now. Is that attitude telling and important Dennis if he'd walked off the course shattered does that say something different to him walking off the course and saying yeah well you know not my day it feels to me like there's a big deal. the way you respond to that maybe almost being as important going forward much yeah. as I hate the term as anything you've yeah. done previously yeah I mean it showed a lot of I mean the word is class gentleman uh, demeanor whatever you want to call it but he showed a lot of class on the golf course the way he handled disappointment afterwards you know, officially in front of the press, but I can assure you just 
he and I in a car driving home, and there was no you know, self-recrimination or anything. He just said, okay, you know, didn't work today, did it? I went, no, but process goes on. We'll come again, and I'm sure you'll look very good in a green jacket. I was like going to say, only a foolish <laughs> man would write off Francesco Molinari, wouldn't they, Clates, uh, based on one Sunday afternoon at Augusta. There's lots to come for him, you would yeah, think. Yeah, well, he, well, he plays so steadily. You know, he's such a beautiful player to watch, and he, he, I mean, really, he only hit. I mean, it's, I find it hard to believe that anyone goes with that flag at twelve at Augusta, knowing that Jack Nicklaus never did. But you know, that, that's a mistake a lot of men have made on Sunday afternoon at Augusta. And, and I was talking to someone yesterday. If, if if he'd pulled that shot off, the tournament was over. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah it was done. He, he, he was three ahead, and, and it was bringing in from there, but. Well, look, the yeah, thing there, yeah, Clayton, I've got to, I don't want to interrupt you, but the thing there is he had the yardage, he had everything, but he wanted to, you know, he's got certain yardages that are right for him, certain distances he goes up flags, and we're going to write in his book in future. Yeah, you go for that, except for the 12th hole on the last day of August. <laughs> don't, do that. don't do that. Don't go at that one. But, you know, it's unfortunate, but if he brings it up, he goes three clear, probably birdies 13 and, and 15 and wins at the canter and everyone right. goes, what a great tournament. Yeah. You know, you, you know, one hour's goal doesn't make a great or poor golfer. That no. hour from 12 to 15 was very disappointing, but you know, he, He's not broken by it in no. any sense. It does speak to the genius of the hole on the course in some ways, though, doesn't it, Clates? Yeah. That at that level, oh, it, yeah. it can put the player to the ultimate test and, and, and have them. These guys don't fail often, do they? Uh, if that's the right word for what's happened there, but uh, really does speak to the brilliance of the golf course. Dennis, it's been fantastic to uh, to talk to you. I've been following Thanks. you on Twitter for ages. I'm glad we got through the conversation without mentioning Brexit, and that is not an invitation for you to start now. <laughs> we don't, if, we, I start now if I start talking Brexit now, will you just simply switch me off and I fade into the distance? Well, may, Twitter may eventually turn you off if you keep at it, actually. Between that and the hobby golfers, you're hogging an awful lot of the, uh, the attention. But uh, it, it has well, been... Let me just say, the hobby golfers... It's the hobby golfers that keep us in work. So thank you, every hobby golfer out there. <laughs> Even the ones that don't like you. And of them, oh, we know. We don't like you. I could handle that. Yeah, indeed. Been fabulous to talk to you. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, mate. Cheers, guys. Yep. And, Thanks, Jerry. Yeah. Cheers. Clates, Thanks. always a pleasure to talk to you. And thank you for, uh, for getting Dennis on the show. It was your intimate contact with him that uh, helped us do that. So thanks for that. And great to chat with you, Clates, as terrific. always. Terrific. Yeah, it really was. Uh, what a... What an interesting and, uh, yeah, interesting and intelligent and thoughtful fellow Dennis is. And that wraps up episode 91 or 2, I think I said, for State of the Game. We'll be back to do it all again fairly soon, hopefully, here on State of the Game. State of the Game is a talk and golf production. Theme music, Writer's Retreat, provided by Lloyd Cole. Visit www.lloydcole.com for more information. For more golf podcasts, log on to www.talkandgolf.com.